Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Naked Security Podcast by Sophos. My name is Paul Ducklin. This is episode number two. And as our first guest this week, please welcome Mr. Matthew Boddy. Matt, what I would like to talk about in this episode is the issue of passwords, something that we talk about a lot on Naked Security. But the reason that I got onto this is I got wind of a study which claims that password guessing attacks, where the crooks try to break into your server or your laptop or your home router or your webcam by trying passwords over and over. Now, these guys are claiming that password guessing attacks are up four times, 400% this year. And my initial response was, maybe we're more inclined to notice because people are paying closer attention to things like server logs. Yeah, so four no. times is a huge amount to go up. And I think it's not just going to be one reason that, that that's gone up so much. Um, yeah, my, my honeypot recently, I, I logged into it today and I saw over the past six months, there's been um, 325,420, very specific number, uh, connection attempts via SSH, via Telnet, or via, via SMB. That's about 50,000 yeah. attempts a month. Yeah running at about 1,500 a day. You just showed me yesterday's figures. You had 800 usernames and passwords that somebody tried over SSH, most of those from apparently from one server in Germany. 200 people assumed that you had Telnet running, uh, in case you don't realize. Telnet is like SSH with no encryption at all. Do not use it. It's very dangerous. The password goes in the clear. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's really insecure. And that's why it's there as a honeypot to try and see if people will log log into it. I did notice a huge difference between having the server, uh, my honeypot server in the US in comparison to having it in the UK. Really? Yeah. Sorry, guys in the US that have got any servers over there, uh, because you do get, I think you do get more attempted attacks on you out out in that location for some reason. So that implies that when guys are attacking, they're not just doing a showdown or a census or a ZMAP type thing where they try and visit every IP number in the whole world in sequence and then see what the whole internet's up to. It's Presumably, just, they're yeah. going, okay, today, folks, let's stick to the US because that's where the bandwidth is, that's where the money is, that's yeah. where the bulk of the servers are. Yeah. But by the same token, when you switched your server to the UK, it isn't as though the attack stopped. No, no, they trickled in, but not quite at the the sort of over 1,000 connection attempts a day that I was getting in the US. For for listeners who are interested in, hey, I'd love to see how many people are knocking on my router's door. Two words of warning for honeypot users. Firstly, you need to make sure that attacker can't escape from the honeypot and own the real deal. And secondly, you sort of need to be careful of what you ask for, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Of course, you're going to have to collect that data from from your own honeypot. So be careful of how you're securing your own connection to the honeypot when you're collecting that data. Oh, right. Yes. Don't use Telnet to download other people's passwords. (laughs) Precisely. Uh, And also, if you're storing other people's usernames and passwords that they've made connection attempts, attempts to your honeypot with... It may well be they've just stumbled upon the wrong IP address. They've just got one digit wrong in uh, in one octet of the IP address and they've gone to the wrong location. Or a script has gone haywire that's yeah. trying to log in. I don't know quite how this fits in the European Union with something like GDPR, yeah. but you're sort of inviting somebody to log in. So if you've got a honeypot and you're storing passwords in plain text so you can analyze them later... It's kind of like you're deliberately going against best practice of what to do with passwords. Absolutely. And I mean, it may be that some people hosting honeypots would publish those usernames and passwords to to the World Wide Web. And uh, 
that's probably a bad idea as well, right? Because it means that you're publishing possibly passwords associated to IP addresses that may, people may use, lowering the security of those individuals. Yes, it's the fact that somebody else has made a security blunder yeah. isn't an excuse or a reason for yeah. you to compound that blunder. Honeypot's a little bit like marriage, isn't it? It is not an undertaking to be entered into lightly. <laughs> That's very true. It's not yeah. just a question of, oh, I'll run this thing and see what it collects. Yeah, yeah. You do keep some of the passwords, just the very top ones, on the grounds that it's very unlikely that however many, 1,500 people in the day yeah. will actually put in a real password. You see things in there that make you suggest, hey, that probably looks like a particular webcam that's popular on the market now. If that suddenly appears that everybody's trying it, it's a good indicator of that somebody's made a security blunder perhaps in a product that might be in wide use. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the Mirai botnet was built on, right? Is webcams and whatnot that that didn't have the default username and password changed and routers that didn't have the default username and password changed, meaning that people could just log on to them and then spread from there. So if you're a programmer, should you have default passwords at all? Or should you have a system that you can connect easily the first time, but you're then you're forced to come up with a new password? Option B, please. But if you force them to pick a complicated password right then and there, mm. aren't they just going to go, well, I'll, I'll put in change me, very common password, yeah. and then never come back and do it, which is why it's a common password. I think it's the better of two bad options. You'd be better off having change me as well as a lot of other random passwords rather than the choice of the Mirai botnet, for instance, which can be found on GitHub with its list of 100 passwords or so that it went out and tried to log into boxes with. So in some ways, there's we haven't learned a lot since the infamous internet worm in 1988. That had about 400 passwords yeah. only and was staggeringly successful as a result. Yeah, yeah. So where where have we come in that time? I guess we've gone backwards in a way when it comes to the Internet of Things. Well, I'm wondering if there's another solution to this. Is there a way that you could segregate your home network or is that too far to go at home? I mean, me personally, I've got different SSIDs depending on what I'm doing on those SSIDs. Well, I was going to say I've got the Sophos XG Firewall Home Edition, which is everything for free. It's actually a fantastic deal, given that it costs nothing and you get everything. VPN, virus scanning, web filtering, email filtering, the lot, provided you're not using it for business. And that's great, because it means you can chop your network into bits. Yeah, precisely. One of the features, we have it in the Sophos XG Firewall, the Home Edition, obviously, as well. Many home routers do have this these days. And it's what you call client isolation or network segregation. Basically sets a firewall rule that says that any device that connects to the network can only see the router and the whole of the rest of the world, which sounds like a crazy thing to do. But it means that when you let your buddies use put their phones on your network, they can't go and go, ha ha ha, I'll try and hack your webcam. And it keeps all the devices separate. That can actually be a very simple way of stopping mischief can't it yeah yeah exactly and also well you if you wanted to go that step further if you've got the time to go that step further at home you could always uh segregate that device into that environment isolate it like you say and then on top of that you could specify just the ip addresses that it needs to talk to or the domains that it needs to talk to which you can do through that that home firewall okay to circle back because i think we need to finish up now i've taken up plenty of your time already back to passwords no matter what 
other mechanisms you put in place to secure the devices you bring into your home. So talk about firmware patches, network segregation. We're talking about port scanning to make sure you're not listening on Telnet by mistake. Despite all of that, passwords still matter. And even the most elementary password, if a crook can find it, still has value to somebody somewhere. That's very true. Matt, thank you very much. Been very informative hearing you talking as careful as you can about <laughs> things that you have found out in the big bad world. Absolutely. And, thank you. Uh, to anyone who's listening and thinking of trying a bit of honeypotting themselves, have fun, but please take care. Our next guest in this episode is Fraser Howard. Fraser, what I would like to talk to you about is HTTPS, the thing that puts the padlock in your browser. One of the most read articles on Sophos Naked Security in the last month. I'm not saying it's the most popular because a lot of people, they liked reading it because they got really angry. In the not too distant future, Google Chrome, when you visit an HTTP, an unencrypted insecure website, we won't just have a little padlock crossed out or a slight change in color. We are going to put the words not secure in big letters in the address bar so you know. It's just a warning. They're not going to stop you using HTTP. And the vitriol from some of our readers going, oh, this is high-handed and I run a hobbyist website and why on earth do I need HTTPS? What on earth is all this about? Why all the anxiety? Isn't HTTPS a good thing? Full stop. I think this is a really interesting topic and it's one that's been bubbling away for the last few years, particularly most hotly in the last, say, two or three years. And really all they're doing in this change is, is Google are basically at the browser level they are waving a flag that mirrors the advice that users have been getting from security professionals like ourselves, which is look out for that padlock. When you, whenever you do online banking, whenever you type a username and password in, make sure there's a padlock in the browser and make sure it's green rather than red. That's advice that's coming in TV ads. Yeah. But yet when we've said, and Google is going to do this in the browser, there was this reaction that, oh, well, somebody's just trying to force us little guys to do something that we don't need. We only need HTTPS for really important sites. Encryption is one of those things that's a black art to the vast majority of people. But actually, for some reason, it seems to be like a, a bit like a red rag. And it works both ways. In some cases, not having encryption is deemed an absolute sin. But as is you know, as you illustrate in this, this this particular article here, when we're trying to enforce the the use of encryption, that can rile people just as much. Now, the important thing about HTTPS, or more properly, I guess we're in this case we're talking about transport layer security (TLS), yep. what used to be called SSL. You don't just use it for websites; you can use it for email and all sorts of other protocols on the web. It's not just about encryption, is it? It's about each end agreeing on an encryption key. And then one end, or perhaps both, producing some sort of evidence in the form of a digital certificate that leads the other person, the other end, to believe that they probably are speaking to the right site. And additionally, whatever goes to that site or comes back from the site is unmolested along the way. So it's dealing with integrity yep. and it's dealing with, if you like, identity or some sort of authenticity. And that's, in many ways, that's a much bigger thing than the encryption part. Yeah, that's the one thing I find quite surprising about how opposed people are to this, this plan of Google. 
if I'm in the business of publishing web content, I would want my readers to know that that content is coming from me and hasn't been modified, tampered with in any way at the point they read it in their browser. In fact, in the, the last time we spoke on the last episode podcast, we talked about crypto jacking, where people stick crypto mining code into the browser. And if you don't have HTTPS on your website, it's absolutely trivial for somebody, somebody running a rogue Wi-Fi access point in a coffee shop to insert crypto mining into every page that every visitor to your website makes. Absolutely. With HTTPS in place, the barrier for someone doing that type of injection is much higher. They have to compromise my actual server. They have to modify the content my server is going to send back. If I'm not using HTTPS, my server can serve up its perfectly innocent content and someone can just inject that on its travels before it gets to the browser that requested it. And there's nothing actually wrong with my server. My server might be, there's no, there's been no attack against my server specifically. It's just that I've chosen to use a, an insecure protocol to deliver that content that's allowed for someone else to modify that content in transit, essentially. And also, it's not just about people modifying that content. What if I'm in a business of providing information to clients and I want that information I'm giving to the client through their browser? I want that to be confidential. I don't want anybody eavesdropping on that information. Just like somebody can potentially watch that traffic and inject into it if it's not HTTPS, that eavesdropping might let somebody essentially harvest information which they can then use maybe to undercut me in a business scenario or whatever. Yes, because people go, oh, well, I've just got, say I've got a site that, you know, we've got a knitting club or we've got a running club or we go out cycling on Saturday morning and there's yeah. 50 of us. And what difference does it make? The fact that it can make any difference at all to your friends, your colleagues, your visitors' privacy being able to see the details of where someone browses rather than just, oh, you went to our website, is actually a goldmine for somebody who's got your worst interests at heart. It's quite surprising at how much animosity people have for the adoption of HTTPS. Fraser, there was, there's another aspect, I guess. When everybody's encrypting their sites, does that mean that being able to block malicious content, crypto mining, for example, inside web pages will kind of become as good as impossible if it's encrypted end-to-end. Does that mean that the crooks have now got a better chance of sneaking JavaScript malware into your organization? This is one of the really crucial aspects to, to encryption generally. And I think the simple answer, the one word answer to that question is yes. If you're not in a position to inspect that content, how can you potentially block that malicious content before it reaches a user? Now, in reality, security products today are like an onion, lots of layers. And what we're essentially talking about here is when you encrypt the web content in transit, you might take away one of those layers of protection. But actually, on the actual endpoint, before it's rendered in a browser, or as it's been rendered in a browser, that content has to be decrypted for the browser to do something useful with it. And at that point, a good security product will still get a chance to inspect that content and potentially block it. Fraser, just to summarize and finish up, in terms of HTTPS, whether you're a user or you're someone who runs a website, either a business or even just for a hobby, would you agree, look for the padlock. It doesn't tell you that the operator of the site knows everything about security, but it's an excellent starting point. And if you're running a web server, even if you think the information on there is pretty uncontroversial and that nobody would mind being associated with it, It shows it's the right thing to do to use HTTPS. 
A, it shows you respect the privacy of your visitors, and B, it stops you from malware jacking, click jacking, crypto jacking, all of those things that could otherwise happen that would actually make you look bad. Yes, I think unequivocally, HTTPS is a good thing. If for, for users it's a good thing, I think it's just important that people have a little bit of understanding about what the padlock mean, means. And as you say, it's a, it's a bare minimum. It's a starting point. If it's not there, you have a problem. If it is there, you might still have a problem, but at least you satisfied that first requirement. For site owners, for site admins, it is the right thing to do. You know, with the likes of Google making it, if you don't use HTTPS, you won't be rewarded in terms of search results. Right. Actually, over time, less and less people are going to find your site. So your site's going to become more and more irrelevant. And when Google proposes modifying its popular browser, Chrome, to put the words not secure on a site that's using HTTP, it's not really controversial. The site isn't secure yep. if anybody can sniff anything you send to it and modify anything you download from it. Yep. So don't get, don't object just because they put those words in there. They're kind of telling you the truth. They are. Thank you so much, Fraser. And no uh, thanks for coming on for the, the, the second time in two weeks. All right, brilliant. Thanks for having me. Our thanks to Matthew, our thanks to Fraser, and our thanks to you for listening. That concludes episode number two of the Naked Security Podcast. Once again, the intro tune comes from Purple Planet Music. And to play you out, we've got The Space Lords. They're a punchy indie space rock band from Germany. You can find them at thespacelords1.bandcamp.com. And this is a riffy little number called Ape Man. Yeah.